Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. I'm Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And as always with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hi, Alan. Hi, Darren. Now, let me just begin by asking whether you're yet being driven stir-crazy by, uh, by quarantine. Yes, well, it's day 12 today, so the end is in sight, and I can happily report to our listeners that the whole family got tested for COVID-19 yesterday, and we're all virus-free, got our results back inside 12 hours, indeed. So we will be released out into the Australian wilds this week. If you'd asked me three days ago, even, I would have said, it's going great. The kids are watching lots of TV. They have 24-hour access to their parents. They love it. But I think the last few days, you know, it's started to drag a bit you know a few more tantrums and just everyone is i think sick and tired of being inside so look the end is in sight and hopefully when we return to australia full time in about a year's time we won't have to do it again but you know who knows at this point right anyway today's date is sunday the 15th of november and while donald trump is yet to concede the election it does seem like the u.s system is moving grinding on ever so slowly, despite the efforts of Trump world to undermine the result. Our own Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, spoke to President-elect Joe Biden this week. And I think perhaps because this election is a critical moment in history, both you and I, Alan, have been a bit more reflective than usual, even more so than usual these past few weeks, thinking about Australia's place in the world and the world to come. Now, of course, the news hasn't slowed down. Australia-China relations are seemingly reaching fresh lows, and we have the apparent targeting of a whole range, half a dozen or so of Australian industries by the Chinese side, seemingly you know, in response to continued tensions, but with the messaging that really the ball is in Australia's court to repair the relationship. Today, we're going to see the signing of the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which will happen virtually at the East Asia Summit. And this coming week, Prime Minister Morrison will travel to Japan to meet their new Prime Minister, Suga, although he's had to pull out of an add-on trip to PNG on the way home due to political turmoil there. And when he gets home, of course, he will have to go through that 14-day isolation, somewhat similar, I suppose, to what I'm doing right now. On the COVID-19 front, we have had some very positive news on the vaccine front this past week. And generally, I mean, Australia is doing really well, as is much of Asia. But as we can all see from the news, Europe and the US are under tremendous strain. So today, what we thought we'd do is tackle some short-term and long-term questions of Australian foreign policy, Australia and the world. And let's start with the short-term. I don't think anyone can disagree with the idea that our bilateral relationship with China is the most significant short-term question of Australian foreign policy. So, Alan, what should the government be looking to do you know, right now and in the very near future to, to I want to say, to improve relations, but with regards to the relationship? Well, unfortunately, as in that, you know, that old joke about the response to a traveller who asks directions in Ireland and is told, I wouldn't start from here. Uh, <laughs> We've often talked before about the missteps, as I see them, that Australia has taken on issues like the 
why we framed the foreign intelligence legislation and the approach to the COVID inquiry at the WHO. But unfortunately, here's where we are, and mm. the Chinese are certainly piling on the coercive pressure. I think the, f- the first point I'd make is that our response to the problem has different dimensions. So in, in when you say, you know, what can we do about the problem with China? Well, one direction is our direct dealings with Beijing, and the other is the way mm. we engage with others. We can talk about both, but as you've just noted in your description of what the PMs are doing, the government is continuing to build on the foreign policy white paper strategy of building coalitions with other Indo-Pacific partners. That makes good sense because all great powers prefer to deal directly with other countries because it maximises the power disparities and all middle-sized countries like us benefit from multilateral coalitions. Mm. On China, a good first step would be for the I think, would be for the Prime Minister or Foreign Minister simply to make a serious speech setting out for the Australian public what our position is on China. We've not had such a speech for a long time now, and policy, therefore, has had to be intuited through coded language in media doorstops, off-the-record briefings to journalists, which, you know, then appear in, in the paper, but you're never quite sure what authority they have Mm. and the use of surrogate messengers and again it's never quite sure whether the surrogates are actually reflecting the government's views or moonlighting so a speech would set out for the Australian public what our position is in a clear comprehensive way not sort of hiding behind winks and nudges so that Mm. China and the Australian people and our regional partners understand it clearly You know, I concede it's hard to do, but if you want a good example of a sophisticated speech in this vein, then look at Singapore Prime Minister Lee Hsien Lung's speech at the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2019, or the sort of article he wrote building on some of those thoughts for the journal Foreign Affairs in July this year. So it's possible for regional leaders to do this thoughtfully and effectively. Yes, I would love to see a speech, Alan, though, if... I step into the PM's shoes for a minute. I wonder if he personally believes whether he needs to deliver another one. He, I could guess, or I can again, I could imagine him saying, I refer you back to my speech at AsiaLink last year in June, and I would remind you that my government has been clear and consistent on China. You know, we value the mutually beneficial economic relationship. We value the comprehensive strategic partnership, but we do things in our interest as we expect China's leaders to do things in theirs and we will speak up in defense of our interests such as you know with relation to the COVID-19 inquiry of course there is a diversity of views in parliament but I cannot be expected as prime minister to repeat myself or to respond to the utterings of every time a colleague expresses their views I mean that's what I imagine he might say Alan you know it's clear the circumstances have changed since June of last year and maybe Maybe the departure of Trump might free the Prime Minister to say more. But, you know, what's wrong with, you know, me cosplaying the PM then? Like, what's wrong with that perspective that he's already said what he needs to say on the relationship? I'd just say that if a week is a long time in politics, 18 months since the AsiaLink speech is an eternity in international mm. relations. So, you know, you, you talked about the comprehensive strategic partnership. Do we still value the comprehensive strategic partnership? In what way? 
Mm. You just talked entirely in terms of interests in what you were saying, yet so much of the public discussion in Australia is expressed in value terms. How do they fit in? And I would like to believe that we weren't being constrained in our own expression of policy towards China by the views of Donald Trump, but is, is that what you meant? Yes, that was exactly what I meant. Look, I don't know. I would have thought the government would not have wanted to say too much on anything, <laughs> any issue of foreign policy that might enter into Trump's orbit, yet lest it find itself caught even more deeply in the trade war or in other tensions. You know, I think generally the government adopted a good approach with managing the White House, you know, given the importance of the US relationship overall, you know, say as little as possible, you know, don't, don't poke the beast. That didn't mean we said nothing. You know, our Prime Minister visited, of course, the White House. We sent our foreign and defence ministers earlier this year for Osmin. But yeah, maybe the government somewhat took your advice, Alan, in terms of framing the relationship, holding back on putting too many controversial ideas out there. You know, I'm obviously guessing, but given how unreliable and inconsistent the Trump administration has been, it makes sense that we would be reluctant to, to put any bold ideas out there. But yeah, you know, who, yeah. who knows? Yeah. Anyway, let, let's talk a bit more about the specific diplomatic moves the government could attempt, particularly in the bilateral relationship with China. I saw one suggestion put out by, I think it was a Chinese official or academic this week, that we should express interest in the new five-year plan and that we should you know, offer to send ministers to Beijing. What is even, Alan, the right frame for thinking about what to do on, in, in, you know, in terms of these kinds of moves? You know, are, are we looking to make low-cost concessions or are we constructing an off-ramp for both sides? Or do we hold our ground and, and, and wait for the Biden administration to take the lead? I'm pretty sure we would already have offered to send ministers to Beijing. Look, and it's also true that our national dignity, which is an important asset, uh, requires us to avoid clear acts of humiliation. So, you know, mm. I don't think any Australian government would, you know, want to kowtow in an obvious way. Mm. Gareth Evans, you'll recall, had this wonderful line that the Australian media has only two stories about Australia's relations with Asia, row or kowtow. And, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, look, I think, we can, I, I think we can deduce that the government has decided that the response should be a dignified silence. Simon Birmingham, we haven't talked about this, but he's, uh, he's already been sworn in, I think, as, as finance minister as well. Mm. And he's going to be really sadly missed, I think, from the foreign affairs and trade portfolio because he's, from what I've seen, been the most effective minister in, in dealing with China. He's walked that sort of narrow path, I, I've, I've thought, with great skill. But look, political leaders, ministers and backbenchers alike can and should start speaking in a more careful way, measuring their words, observing the proper protocols. Now, outsiders to the sort of, you know, Canberra bubble tend to roll their eyes at the very mention of protocol, but protocol has a real purpose in diplomacy it underlines the equality of sovereign states, no matter what their size, and it provides an agreed structure around the dealings with one another. So you don't have to sort of engage in endless spats about, you know, who does what or who goes first. 
I don't recall an Australian minister doing this, but certainly commentators here have begun echoing US Secretary of State Pompeo in talking about the Chinese Communist Party rather than the Chinese government. And that's a, a clear delegitimizing tactic. DFAT Secretary Francis Adamson reminded parliamentarians at the Senate Estimates Committee hearing recently that the Chinese government was going to make good use of divisions in Australia about China. And newspaper reports afterwards suggested that she had in mind incidents like the demand from Senator Erica Betts that we talked about last time that Chinese mm. Australians appearing before a parliamentary committee should be required to pass a loyalty test by designing the CCP. Yes, I completely agree with you on that one, obviously, Alan. On the China versus the CCP thing, I do understand that this is a bit of a fraught issue since it's often in the interests of the Chinese government to collapse a diverse range of Chinese people and ethnicities and groups and companies, even individuals, into this single homogenous whole where then the government and the party speak on behalf of, of them all. That way, if you criticise, quote-unquote, China, you're attacking the state, the party, and all of its people. I think, you know, again, this is out of my expertise, but this is one of the things that the United Front work seeks to achieve. Now, perhaps my take is probably there's a middle ground somewhere. It's one of those issues where you don't want to go too far in one direction. You know, the Pompeo approach where everything is about the CCP, the evil CCP, it oozes hostility and seems counterintuitive. Again, as you say, Alan, are fully delegitimizing. But you also don't want to go to the opposite pole to that because, you know, sometimes it's going to be important to, to focus in and draw attention on the role of the party and China's Marxist-Leninist state to understand and respond to what's happening. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's certainly some truth in that, but I wouldn't get too excited about it. I mean, how many times have you heard Scott Morrison talk about the Australian people's response? You know, Australians are appalled by what's happening know wherever it may be and you and i do it all the time really in other contexts we say you know india has done this when we mean modi's bjp we talk about washington uh, when we mean or you know hopefully this is past tense now where we meant the trump administration the difference is really whether you talk about the chinese government not china which gives it a legitimate status as a sovereign power or the ccp actually Two things on that. One, the one time I remember an Australian government official talking about the Australian people was Malcolm Turnbull's unfortunate, the Australian <laughs> people have stood up, stood up yeah. in the Chinese context. But I think, look, we have a, our state society relationship is very different to China. So that is distinct. But the other one point I'll make is that actually, certainly over the past few years, maybe since the beginning of this podcast, really, you know, when I've been thinking about how I want to discuss United States' actions, there have been many times when I've actually consciously used the phrase the Trump administration rather than the United States. And maybe that was just wishful thinking on my behalf that I really wanted to believe that what we think of as America was different, <laughs> something other than, than what we were seeing from the White House. And, and certainly in some cases, it was a clear you know, assertion that what we were seeing was almost unique. And you know, I think now, having seen the results of the election, I can be far less confident that the, the assumptions underlying that distinction are going to be solid forevermore. Certainly for the next four years, 
we may get some respite from that. But it, so I, I think it's interesting now that the, the, I've seen talk of how all elections, at least in, in, in sort of, you know, prominent countries, are becoming more internationalised and that you may end up seeing coalitions of political left you know, leading parties and right-leading parties, populist parties, not sort of formally joining forces, but certainly having clear interests in the outcomes of elections. And that may actually be a new type of foreign interference or a, sort of a new dynamic that we might need to to think about. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm scratching the surface of a much bigger topic, I feel like, but this distinction between the government of the day and the state is one that I, I don't think we're going to, it's going to be confront us again, not just with respect to China. Yeah, no, no. I think you're. I think you're overcomplicating it again. I mean, the Trump administration. Uh, you're entirely right to talk about the Trump administration or the Biden administration or anything else. But the equivalent of that is saying the Chinese government. We're talking about the government in each case. If in the way that people have been using the term CCP, you know, I think the only way you can see it is as an attempt to delegitimise the government itself. From my point of view, I think more about the party when I'm thinking about long-term questions of international order, in fact, and that I am trying, when I think about how China will project its power internationally and seek to lead, for me, I learn, or at least the inferences I draw about that future come from how it conducts its affairs domestically. And the particular nature of that domestic political arrangement, to be a bit euphemistic, you know, it's distinct and it informs you know, how I think and there'll be a piece that, that I'm co-authored that will come out early next year, which I'm sure will give us a chance to talk about this more. And so for me, it's it's instructive. Now, in terms of the label, I, I, I don't feel personally that different between saying Chinese government and CCP because they are so clearly the same thing. But to the extent that it might draw attention to some of those distinct causal power of that regime type, maybe it's useful. But as you say, there is a cost to that, which is to appear to delegitimise the sovereign government of China. And I think that's what we need to be careful of. Yeah. And, and you're an academic and you can uh, <laughs> do that. Yes. And that's, and that's fine. But there's a difference in a, an Australian minister or a mm. US Secretary of State. Mm. Yeah. No, point taken, point taken. The other thing I want to mention, or more foreshadow, is the possibility that what Australia is currently experiencing on the economic front might not go away regardless of our actions in the political and diplomatic arena. I've been researching China's economic coercion for almost a decade now, and one of its less well-known features is that very often the targeting of a particular industry or company is not only or even primarily about inflicting pain on the misbehaving country or company. Sometimes it totally is. You know, the NBA, after its official tweeted about the Free Hong Kong movement, or the South Korean conglomerate Lotte, after it provided land to the Korean government to deploy a missile defense system. These are clear examples where there was a direct and purposeful targeting. But there are many other examples where you, know, you could see that hiding behind the political motive is an economic or a geoeconomic motive often in the form of industry policy, where China is looking to protect or build up its own domestic industries and in some ways uses the cover of political tensions to do so. So for our case, for Australia, one possibility is that Beijing is making a concerted effort to build up its own self-sufficiency and diversify its sources of imports. We are, after all, one of the few countries that actually enjoys a trade surplus with China. 
Now, there was this recently this big meeting in by the Chinese government, the fifth plenary session of the 19th Communist Party Central Committee is the, is the name. And there, there was a new five-year economic plan set out. And people who I trust who read the tea leaves of all the speeches and documents surrounding this meeting and preceding it suggest that self-sufficiency is now a real central focus of the Chinese government. Now, I still believe that political irritants are a factor for Australia and a major factor. But there is a big debate in Australia about the extent to which we should or can diversify our export sources and, and how we would do so. One of the major arguments against sort of a radical diversification by Australia is that it would be too expensive. You know, the complementarities between our economy and China's are just too strong. And that's a very powerful economic logic. But I just want to flag at this point that these complementarities might actually bother Beijing even more than they bother those of us in Australia who worry about geoeconomic vulnerabilities. And that decoupling might be driven as much, if not more, from the Chinese side than the West in the years ahead. I might be wrong, but you know, I think we should be watching this space. A couple of points, Darren. In addition to the expense of trade diversification by China, the real problem for us is the identification of other markets which offer the mm. same scale and large middle class wanting to buy our mm. goods and services. The Australian government's own estimates suggest that Chinese purchasing power will grow more than the United States, Japan, India and Indonesia combined over the next decade. Now, maybe, you know, COVID's going to change that in a different direction, but I, it's hard to see that. And I agree with you that the experience of the last few years with the United States as it's sort of tightened technological controls on exports to China has certainly been another big driver of greater self-sufficiency in Beijing. You know, we look at our the structure of our market and talk about diversification. Every government you know, can see the same figures. So I'm sure that the Chinese government is also asking itself the same questions. Mm, mm. All right, well, let's move on and tackle one more short-term issue. I think the China question is particularly interesting because what to do next is a live contentious debate. And I imagine there is debate inside government about what we should be doing. And so I'm hoping that we can find another issue another short-term issue that, that might also be contentious or where there might be some disagreement inside government or even between us, Alan. And this, I'm going to carve out climate change since we are planning on dedicating an entire episode to this very soon. And we have recent news to give us a lot of fodder to discuss. You know, we have got the PM showing us his priorities by going to Tokyo. We've got a $1.5 billion loan that's going to Indonesia to tackle COVID-19 recovery. And we've got growing ties, of course, with India and Europe. Problem is, none of these seem especially contentious, other than the question of spending money. So, look, Alan, pick one. You know, in a short, a short-term question of Australian foreign policy, where do you see scope for more creativity and thinking for a short-term agenda? Well, this is not sort of excitingly controversial, or you know, liable to make you and I come to blows at all, uh, Tara. <laughs> but I. Th think the thing that really matters is to get us working with others. And although, you know, governments placed a lot of emphasis on the development of new structures, like the quadrilateral arrangements with India, Japan and the US, I think that there's room for better utilisation of existing regional institutions like ASEAN, 
APEC and the East Asia Summit. So we've got a lot of things which are already in place and available to us to use if we can do so creatively. So, you know, one, one immediate issue is how we follow up the openings that the signing of RCEP will give us. What are we going to do about that? How are we going to work with others to encourage its growth? What are we going to do uh, with the United States, for example, in encouraging them to look back across the Pacific? Mm, mm. Actually, that reminds me, a friend of the podcast, Stephen Jedgetts, broke the story for the ABC yesterday that the government is going to pledge, I think, over $550 million to reassert our presence in Southeast Asia, focusing on COVID-19 recovery, but also development programs, security programs, and economic programs. I guess there are limitless possibilities if we're willing to spend the money. But I think what distinguishes the most active activity we've seen recently, and I'm thinking Five Eyes things and, and Quad, are the shared security interests between the participants. And so I wonder you know, do our security interests overlap sufficiently with Southeast Asia to open up scope for cooperation? Or will we simply be able to build deeper economic links and institutional links you know, through RCEP and, and the opportunities that provides? Because one thing I'm super curious about is the extent to which Southeast Asian countries in particular share some of the non-traditional security concerns that we have regarding China you know, they have their own traditional security concerns based on geography, especially the South China Sea, maritime disputes with China, and the militarization of the South China Sea generally. But do they also worry about foreign interference? You know, do they worry about vulnerability to economic coercion? How much are they worrying about the security of their telecommunications networks, etc.? You know, it strikes me that Australia, we have a lot of experience on these issues, perhaps even credibility, which could be leveraged in the form of advice and technical assistance. I mean, does that make any sense to you, Alan? One thing you can be sure of, Darren, that there's nothing about dealing with China that our Southeast Asian partners haven't been handling and thinking about for far longer than we have. All the ASEAN countries understand the complexities of Chinese immigration to their own societies. Some of them, Thailand, for example, have dealt better with it than others. And a key challenge now comes in the area of trade and economics and the extent to which, on the one hand, they've benefited from their participation in global value chains centred around China, and on the other, whether they can benefit more from the transfer out of China of manufacturing industry. You can see some of this at play at the moment in the way Singapore is going all out to attract foreign companies, which are now uncertain about the situation in Hong Kong and looking for another place in Asia to work from. So contrary to the sort of implication, I think, in what you were saying, Australia is a newbie here, and I think we've got lessons to learn the other way. That's really interesting. And as an academic, it strikes me as a fertile area for academic research, or, or maybe it's out there already and I'm just unfamiliar with it. I'm talking about comparing the similarities and differences between Australia and I guess the West's experience with foreign interference and that of Southeast Asia, and I guess you should add Northeast Asia as well, both historically and recently, and what lessons each can learn from the other. So if any listeners can point me to research on this, please please tweet at me and, and I'll, I'll spread it around. Okay, before we move on, 
I don't think we're planning on returning to the news for the next little while on the podcast. So, Alan, can I ask you to preview Prime Minister Morrison's trip to meet the new Japanese Prime Minister, Suga, this week? And while he said that the focus of the visit is COVID-19 and trade, there's also a new defence pact that will be signed. The trend towards balancing, you know, that we discussed in a previous episode, Alan, seems to be continuing apace. Is, is that right? Yeah, we, we also talked last time about the Graham Dobell measure, you know, that Graham suggested that you can judge the importance of a country to Australia by the time a policymaker is willing to spend in quarantine. Well, in this, <laughs> case, in this case, the PM will have 14 days of isolation back home in return for one day's work in Tokyo. So the government obviously places enormous importance on the relationship. And that's understandable. It'll be the first time that Morrison has met Suga. You talked about signing a new defence pact. I don't think they will actually sign it, but they'll certainly declare that progress has been made with what's called the Reciprocal Access Agreement. This is essentially a status of forces agreement rather than a security alliance, but it's of considerable practical importance. It will make it easier for our forces to operate in the other country. And it's the first time that Japan has signed such an agreement with a country outside the United States. It's been a long time coming. Uh, Negotiations started during a visit by Tony Abbott in 2014. So it's a Mm. good thing that it's finally coming to fruition. All right. Well, let's move on to the long term. And I want to frame my first question, speaking from the perspective of my original academic training as an economist. The difference between the short term and the long term in economics is that In the short term, at least one input into your production function or whatever it is you're doing is fixed. And in the foreign policy context, then, you can think about Australia having a fixed set of material resources, military, economic, human capital, and non-material resources, such as our relationships and our reputation. All of this, of course, in the short run. While in the long run, these can be changed, especially through the process of, of investment. So... Of course, your investment decisions must be conditioned on the environment you expect to face over that long-term time horizon. So this brings me to a two-part question, Alan, one about the environment over the long term and one about the nature of our investment in it. What is foremost in your mind when you think about the world Australia will face, say, in the decade from 2030 to 2040? Well, I'm sure we all agree that trying to predict this far ahead is a mug's game. Something as we know with great degree of certainty, and one is that climate change will have continued to warm global temperatures and increase extreme weather events. So that's something that everyone will be dealing with. We'll know by then whether we're in a decoupled world. We'll know whether the US has managed to overcome its current political dysfunction and whether in China's case, a techno-authoritarian state has been able to generate real scientific and technological progress sufficient to keep it at the leading leading edge of of Mm. power. It's an experiment that's underway now. We'll also have a, a much better idea by then of how China will act and behave as a great power. Australia, you know, unfortunately is going to be poorer than we would otherwise have been before COVID. And there'll be large new impositions on the government's budget as the demands for, you know, health treatments and care for the elderly 
increase. And so that's going to limit our capabilities. We'll still have the you know huge strategic advantages we have now of a, mm. a continent for, ourself, for ourselves and a border with no one, as Paul Keating used to say. But I think, you know, I, I feel gloomier as I look further outwards, and that's a new feeling for me. Mm. One way I think about projecting 10 or 20 years into the future is to ask if I could have gone back in time the same distance and advised the government of the day, say John Howard in the early 2000s, what would I have told him? I don't think I really could have told him not to invade Iraq or to severely limit the use of mortgage-backed securities that gave us the global financial crisis, because these questions are uh, for the United States and our questions are, I think, of, of smaller, relatively smaller scale. Yeah. Yeah. Would I have told him to save more of our manufacturing industry? I, I don't think so. Um, notwithstanding the decoupling that's just getting started, would I have told him to deprioritize fossil fuels or diversify away from China? I mean, part of me wants to say yes, but you know, the whole reason we're in a, in good shape now is because of the resources boom, or at least largely because of the resources boom and trade with China, which has really insulated our economy. So. I find it really difficult as well to sort of to, to think forward. I think the one and like you, Alan, gloomy you know prediction I'll make is that security is only going to increase its dominance of, of national and international policy making in a whole of society sense, in a way that even the threat of terrorism did not. You know, part of that is the changing balance of power, which we discuss endlessly on this podcast. But part of it is also going to be a function of technology. You know, technology is making our lives easier, but it's already enabling new forms of malign influence and societal disruption. And I worry that we might add new forms of violence to that down the track as well. So insecurity is going to fuel the urge to control. And look, well, you can already see this reality being lived in China and what they're trying to achieve at home. But I think all countries are going to have to grapple with the liberty versus security balance, and technology is going to make the striking of that balance more difficult than ever. Anyway, Alan, like given our sort of gloomy predictions and projections of what's ahead, what kinds of investments do you have in mind that we can start to engage in now? Well, certainly investment in our human capital, as you were saying, through education and training, investment in our defence forces, which may need to increase. Investment, I think, in our social cohesion, and which you know we've we've done pretty well at compared with compared with other countries, but we need to work hard at it. And investment in our foreign policy, especially through the instruments of our diplomacy, which are shockingly depleted. Jay Biden wrote recently that under his administration, diplomacy would be the first instrument of American power. I'd love to see any Australian political leader make the same sort of statement. Hmm. I don't know if I can add much. My starting point is that as a medium-sized country, we can't do everything. We can't be self-sufficient really in much. We will never have a top 10 military or, or a massive diplomatic footprint, although as you say, Alan, a larger one now remains a good idea. And we're never going to be able to fund entire programs or institutions entirely ourselves. Let me, let, me just inter- let, me, let me interrupt you there, Darren. It seems to me that I'm making some progress with you. And in the way you've framed that answer, you're allowing Australia more agency in the world than you would have done in earlier 
conversations. The language you're using is just slightly more nuanced and you know optimistic and full of potential than you would <laughs> Is that right? Maybe. I mean, look, I was looking to contrast us with what you know, the major powers, the US and China especially, could achieve. And they have the most agency of any country. And I'm saying, well, we can't do what they can do. Does that mean I'm implying more scope? Maybe. I mean, this gets me to my idea, which is an economic idea of, of specialization. I think back to my time when I was studying in the US doing a master's and a PhD, I became very good friends with a lot of members, uniform members of the US military or officers. And, and we would talk. And one of the constant, consistent messages I heard from them was that Australia or the Australian military was really good at doing two things in particular, long-range ISR, which is intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and related to that, that we had excellent special forces. And I heard this consistently. That doesn't mean we weren't good at doing other things, but these two things were what distinguished us, at least in, in their eyes. So my question is, what can we be world-leading at in the future? Are there, are there niches that we can carve out, whether it's in the diplomatic sphere, the military sphere, or in some other specialised field that is not only valued by the United States, which is what those conversations are about, but others in the region, potentially even by China. And I saw this week that the Premier of Victoria, Dan Andrews, announced a $150 million expenditure by the state government that will go towards the creation of a new infectious disease institute. And of course, Victoria has been the Australian state hit hardest by COVID-19. And this initiative seems to me to be a great idea, but it got me thinking, what else is there in science or technology or in the international relations field? You know, do we become experts in geoeconomic strategy and in, in, in countering political warfare? I mean, I don't know, Alan. I, I'm not, I don't have any particular ideas, but, and as you say, we may have more to learn from our regional partners than, than the opposite. But specialization is the one thing that's in my mind at, at the moment. Alan, moving on, any investment strategy has to be robust to shocks. What do you see as the biggest risk? And by risk, I mean something that might materialize, but also might not. And that, and if it did, though, would really disrupt your investment strategy. You know, and, and what could we do to mitigate such a risk? War is the obvious challenge. Yeah. It, it, it seems to me, or I worry anyway, that we, we think about war too lightly. For most people now, war is something that happens in remote places in the Middle mm. East. We line up and pay tribute to our soldiers, but we never think of it as something that will directly affect us in the way that the terrible memories of the First and Second World Wars weighed on the emotions and the policies of politicians and citizens during the 20th century or even the concern about nuclear conflict, which drove the peace movement during the Cold War. So that's what I think the real danger is. And to mitigate it, you need what you've always needed, uh, imaginative and brave statecraft and effective diplomacy. I'm going to pick up on your point about social cohesion, Alan. And really, this is a continu continuation of our discussion of the US election last episode. You know, I recommended those two pieces by Francis Fukuyama, David Brooks, on the twilight of liberalism a few episodes ago, and I'm still grappling with the fact that we saw Donald Trump increase the number of votes he received by quite a large margin, even as he lost the election. 
And so there's a great piece in Politico, which I'll link on the show notes, written by Tim Alberta. And it's her, his interview with a Michigan congresswoman, a Democrat, Alyssa Slotkin, who just won her second term and is definitely to the, to the right on the Democratic Party spectrum. So the opposite of Bernie and AOC and, and others. And this piece is about her grappling with Trump's enduring appeal. And I just want to quote a short segment of the article. You know, the one thing I will say about Donald Trump, Slotkin began, he doesn't talk down to anybody. He is who he is, but he doesn't talk down to anyone. And I think that there is a certain voter out there because of that who identifies with him and appreciates him. It's not just that he eats cheeseburgers at a big celebratory dinner. It's not just that he does things that the common man can kind of appreciate. And it's not even because he uses kind of simplistic language. He doesn't use complicated wonky language the way a lot of Democrats do, Slotkin said. We sometimes make people feel like they aren't conscientious enough. They aren't thoughtful enough. They aren't woke enough. They aren't smart enough or educated enough to just understand what's good for them. It's talking down to people. It's alienating them. And there's just certain voters who feel so distant from the political process. It's not their life. It's not their world. They hate it. They don't like all that politics stuff. Trump speaks to them because he includes them. And Alan, I think of the that little short podcast from Sam Harris that you recommended last episode as well about Trump giving license yeah. to people to sort of, you know, to feel to, because he's shameless. Yeah, yeah. And I guess my point of all this is to say that, you know, a major risk comes from within. And, and I echo your, your point about focusing on social cohesion. I think as a country, Australia still is in a strong position. You know, if you just take the recent Queensland election, the far-right party, Pauline Hanson's One Nation, did worse, you know, did poorly. And I don't have particular ideas about how to do things better, just that political leaders and bureaucrats need to be relentlessly focused on, on this issue. Divided societies are much weaker states on the international stage, and the Trump phenomenon and what's happening in the US you know, should be a warning for us. But don't you think, Darren, that one of the likely enduring effects of the pandemic here has been to reinforce our sense of state and sub-regional identities? Isn't it possible over time that West Australians, for example, will begin to be reminded, and not for the first time, of course, of the different economic interests that they have in the, in the world? I've, I've just been struck during this period by the way people have begun thinking of them uh, themselves in in you know is it like sort of state of origin on a, <laughs> on a grand scale in all in all circumstances it's a good question alan i think for those australians who have been unable to visit family in victoria in particular and that, that includes both of us i would hope it's the opposite feeling but you know, if you are right on the economic front that will contribute to increase pressure on our federal model. And I'm sure you're thinking like I am of the foreign relations bill that's working its way through parliament as well. Absolutely. You know? yeah. yeah. And and again, that would just be another force that it, we need to be conscientious in, in, in managing. Your question, it actually, it reminds me of a recent book published by the prominent never Trump conservative, but quite conservative academic writer, David French in the United States. And his book is called Divided We Fall. America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. I haven't read the book, but French has done the rounds and all the podcasts that you and I listen to, Alan. So I've heard him interviewed a few times. He posits in the book a scenario where 
federal-state relations in the US become so poisoned that it leads to a, an, an attempted secession. And in his example, it's one led by California and the, and the West Coast states in response to a conservative in the White House. His solution, though, is actually a more powerful form of federalism to try to devolve as much power down to the states as possible so they have scope to go their own way. But of course, for this podcast, foreign and defence policy are the domains where this is the most difficult. So look, it seems like a worthwhile book to read and one that we should be thinking about as well. Okay, Alan, well, that was a a good conversation. Let's, as always, do our final segment, reading, listening and watching. What do you have for us this week? I had two things on the foreign leaders who will most influence Australia in the immediate future, Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. The first is Evan Osnos from The New Yorker being interviewed on the Ezra Klein show about his new biography of Joe Biden, and the episode's called Joe Biden Explained. And then Frederick Tews and Joseph Torrigan were interviewed on the Little Red podcast about Xi Jinping, and that episode's called Xi Dada and Daddy Power, the Party and the President. Both of them, I thought, were really thoughtful and useful from you know an Australian practical point of view, introductions to the two men. Mm, mm. Yes, I, I've listened to the Ezra Klein interview already and, and with Evan Osnos, and it's fantastic. And every episode of the Little Red podcast is, is great too. I have a very lowbrow quarantine recommendation. I don't think I've recommended this before, but if I have, I apologize. But looking for things to do with two small children for the past 12 days, I have greatly valued a YouTube video set. It's called PE with Joe, and it was this personal trainer in in the UK who, when Britain began its lockdown in March, started to do daily recordings of 30 minutes of in-your-living-room exercise designed for families. Mm. And so it's, it's things that little kids can do, you know, three, four, five, six years old. But he did one every day, every weekday for weeks, you know, and and there are lots of other videos on. He's got a, I think he's called the body coach or something like that. But if you just YouTube search PE with Joe, you can find they're all dated Monday, the so-and-so of March and, and, and through April and May. They've been great. You know, the good exercise for me and Rebecca and, and also, you know, for the kids. So PE with and Joe. he's so perky. He's so perky. He is, he is very perky. He's able to be optimistic even when we're in quarantine. Anyway. You can do it. Can yeah. Do it. That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we thank AIIA intern Mitchell McIntosh for research and audio editing. And, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.